Let us return to our meditations on the book of Hebrews, where we left off last week in Hebrews chapter 9. I was thinking this morning uh, about how men like me, who go about being hopefully responsible preachers of God's word, uh, try to do many things in our sermons, but one of the things we have to do in our own exploration of the text during the week and in our explanation of the text on Sunday morning is figure out the context that surrounds whatever verse or passage that we're tasked with preaching. But when we're moving through as a church, verse by verse, books of the Bible, the context is already kind of baked into it, isn't it? Because we've already been through Hebrews 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Not only me studying the text, but us as a congregation. And so this makes it a lot easier, especially with a complex book like the book of Hebrews, for us to properly understand what the Holy Spirit has to say to us about our Lord Jesus, our great high priest. If you recall last week, chapter 8 was promising us this new covenant relationship between God and us. And there were two primary promises that God was making to us. Number one, that we would all know the Lord when this new covenant has happened. From the least of us to the very greatest. And secondly, that in this new covenant, we would find that our sins have been forgiven forever. The chapter ended with this statement in chapter 8. In speaking of a new covenant, he, that is the Lord, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, as Americans living in a primarily capitalist, consumerist society, we intuitively understand what this statement means. We are a culture that is constantly making old things obsolete by introducing something new. doesn't matter what we're talking about, whether it's clothes or laptops or phones or movies or restaurants. The moment that we hear that there's some new one out there, immediately in our minds, whether consciously or subconsciously, the old one begins to feel obsolete. And our love for it begins to vanish away. It feels worn out. All you have to say in order to market some product to the public is to call it new. Because when you say something is new, what does that mean about every other one like it out there? It's old. And who wants the old one? Well, you might say that God himself understands a little bit about this uh, marketing scheme and bringing many sons to glory. He says the one key word about the work he is accomplishing in Jesus that we all need to hear. That it is new. It's new. Which tells us 
all we need to know about everything that came before. It's old. It's old. What purpose, then, does the old covenant serve? When we say old covenant, we're talking about the law of Moses. What is the purpose of all the worship that God established under Moses and that Old Testament covenant? The tabernacle with the priests and the sacrifices and the furniture and the curtains and the blood and the sacrifices and so on. Why would God go to all that trouble in the old if he knew that he was just one day going to make it all obsolete? And one day it was all going to just begin to vanish away. Well, that is the question we're going to wrestle with today in Hebrews chapter 9. So if you found it, let's stand together as we receive his implanted word. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenants. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of, wor of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood 
For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is entered, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So in the reading of God's word, you may be seated. So, our question before us this morning is, what is the point of the first covenant if God knew he was going to replace it? Why did God go to all the trouble of erecting under the first covenant a tent and appointing priests and giving rituals and sacrifices and worship practices and regulations if he knew that ushering in the second covenant would make the first one obsolete? Well, the first thing that we see this morning is this. The first teaches us to long for the second. The first covenant teaches us to long for the second. The first covenant, the law, short word that we use for it, the law is our teacher. And what the law teaches us is not a longing for the law, but a longing for the gospel. The first teaches us to long for the second. And there are three words that appear throughout chapter 9 that indicate and communicate this point to us. And they're these. Parable, imitation, and copy. Parable, imitation, and copy. So verse 1. Our author begins in this way. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. I'm not sure how many of you are, are, are familiar with the structure that God instructed Moses and the people to build. Uh, he, he told them to build a tent. Now, that word in and of itself should communicate to us whether God intended for this to be permanent or temporary. Because a tent is something you use while you're building something else. All right? There's your first clue. A tent was set up, and this tent that they built in the Old Testament had Two sections inside. 
So imagine you have this enclosure, and then it's separated in half by a curtain. And on the one side, you have what the author says was called the holy place. And then on the other side, the most holy place. And between, between these two sections, you had a giant curtain. Not like a shower curtain. We're talking like a thick, heavy curtain, and it separated these two sections from one another. Now that first section, the priests were going in there every day. They're going in, there's a table in there, there's bread that they're supposed to be replacing every day, and there's a lampstand inside. But they could never go through the curtain into the second part, the most holy place, because in the second part was where the Ark of the Covenant of God was. And the ark is this golden box, and we're told there were three things kept inside, the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, Aaron's staff that budded. But the important thing is that on top of that, there was a mercy seat. And under the golden wings of these fiery angels, the presence of God dwelt on that seat. And the author of Hebrews tells us that None of the priests were allowed to go in there, only one, and only one time a year, and only in order to offer blood and then to run back out as fast as he could. And our author doesn't go into great detail about these things, so we won't either this morning. But in verses 8 and 9, he says something very interesting about this whole structure. Verse 8. By this, it's talking about the tent that was set up. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. That phrase there in verse 9 literally says, this is a parable. Which is symbolic, this is a parable. This tent that God set up in the Old Testament is a parable. You guys know what a parable is? Jesus told a lot of parables. You know, parable of the sower, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost sheep, parable of the fig tree, parable of the mustard seed. What is a parable? A parable is some visual aid that helps you to understand a spiritual reality. A parable shows us what something is like. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the Holy Spirit himself gave the Old Testament Israelites the instructions to build something that would then become a parable to them and to us that illustrates what the first and second covenants are like. It's a parable. And it's a visual aid that is meant to feed our longing, not for the first covenant, but for the second. Let's say you've got an iPhone 11. It's amazing what phones can do today, right? Great, has all these apps, great tool. But what if Apple says to you one day on a commercial, did you know that there's also an iPhone 12? All of a sudden... The luster comes off of that uh, iPhone 11, doesn't it? Just because you know that an iPhone 12 exists. You're a Levitical priest. Amazing. You get to go into the holy place. It's so great. 
But did you know that also a most holy place exists? And just knowing that that most holy place exists, the luster starts to come off of the holy place because you want to go in there. However great the holy place is, you now know that it is second best. As a consumer, you may never have seen the iPhone 12, but simply knowing it exists makes your iPhone 11 old news. And you know that you want the better one. As a priest, you may never have seen what the most holy place looks like, but the mere fact of knowing its existence that somewhere behind that curtain that you're never allowed to go, there's this place called the most holy place. It makes the holy place feel like old news. And you know that you want to go in. It's a parable. As great as the first section is, the holy place is knowing that there is some second thing behind the curtain that's called the most holy place, knowing that it exists, that it's there. You want to go in there. As good and holy as the law is, it's not the most holy place. In the second covenant, the new covenant, that's where the presence of God is dwelling. And isn't that where you and I want to be? The first teaches us to long for the second. Well, there's a second word that the author uses to help us understand this truth, and it appears in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And the word there used in verse 23, it's uh, in our Bible says copies, is really the idea of uh, a pattern or even more literally an imitation. An imitation. It says the old, the first covenant, this tent is an imitation. In our society, when you call something an imitation, that's usually not a good thing. It means it's kind of substandard. Um, if you go to other countries that aren't as strict on their trademarks, you can find some, some fun imitation products. I saw online uh, yesterday a pair of Mikey's for sale. All right? In neighborhoods overseas, you could eat at a place called Pizza Hut or KFG. Or you could grab a latte from Sunbucks Coffee. Even here in America, we do have some imitations. You go down the baking aisle and uh, you look up on the shelf next to all the spices, you have all these imitation flavors, right? You have imitation vanilla at the grocery. What's the purpose of imitation vanilla? It's not actually vanilla, but it's supposed to taste like it, right? It's meant to taste like the real thing. Question though, if you had on your shelf imitation vanilla and the real thing, which one are you going to reach for? Once a year, the Old Testament people got a little bit of a taste of what that second new covenant is going to taste like. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, one man would pass through the curtain into the presence of God carrying blood to take away the sins of the people. Question, did that blood of bulls and calves 
take away the sins of the people? No, it didn't. Why? It was an imitation. The whole setup. It only tasted like the real thing. But that little taste in the first was meant to make the people of God long for the real thing in the second. So, this first covenant is a parable. It's an imitation. And then thirdly, the third word that's used comes in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven himself, itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The earthly tent, we're told, was a copy of the true things. A copy. The difference between the first and the second is the difference between seeing a picture of the Grand Canyon and actually visiting the Grand Canyon. Seeing the picture is no substitute for actually being present there. In fact, seeing pictures of beautiful things like that only make us want to visit. The first only makes us long for the second. The first is a parable, an imitation, a copy. Its job is only to make us long for something else. And the question is, how? How does the old covenant with its earthly tent cultivate our longing for the new covenant and its heavenly one? Well, the law continues to say two things to us over and over again. Number one, it says this. You can't go in. You can't go in. Look again at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second section only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing. So the design of the earthly tent was meant to cultivate this hunger. The priests always going into the first section and every time they see a curtain that says to them, you can't go in. You cannot go in. The point of the most holy place was not being able to go in there. That's its whole point of its existence. The law is an instruction, a teaching tool. The law hung a giant curtain between the presence of God and men. And the law says to every priest who goes into that first section and sees that giant curtain hanging there, blocking the way to God, you can't go in. You can't go in. Day after day, year after year, century after century, the law is proclaiming you cannot go in. And it only makes us hunger for the day when we can. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared 
as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So the first is proclaiming over and over again, you can't go in, but then the second says this, he entered in once for all. Since Adam's fall in the garden, the way to the presence of God has been barred. Do you know the story? Adam and Eve were pushed out of the garden and God placed angels of fire and a flaming sword to guard the way back to the presence of God. And then God gives his people the law and he says, well, you better put a curtain there. And do you know what was embroidered on that curtain? Fiery angels. Once again saying, you are not allowed to go in. But we've already heard this morning that Matthew's gospel tells us that when Jesus cried out on the cross, the sound of his voice tore that curtain in two. He entered in once for all and not into the earthly tent, not the tent, the temple of this earth, but into the heavenly one, the second one. And he didn't bring the blood of bulls and goats, but he entered in with his own blood. And we're told that that blood secured an eternal redemption and because we have been redeemed because Jesus has purchased us Jesus takes into the presence of God everyone who belongs to him he entered in once for all and guess what brothers and sisters so can we so do we for Christ has entered verse 24 not into holy places made with hands which are just copies of the true things he's gone into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You know what Jesus, the high priest, did when he appeared before his father? He said, Father, let them into. Now, do you think God said no? Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences for dead works, from dead works to serve the living God. The Father has never, never, never in the history of the existence of God ever said no to his son. His answer to Christ offering up his own blood through the power of the spirit to God is yes, once. For all. Brothers and sisters, all the longings that we have learned from the first, from the law, have been satisfied in the second. To borrow a phrase from the prophet Isaiah, let us then press on to know the Lord. You cannot know the Lord while there's a curtain between you and him, but Christ has torn that curtain in half. The law taught us to long for the presence of God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has entered into that presence. And guess what? He's bringing us in there too. Let us join in the great liturgy of worship that is taking place even today in the presence of God. Paul says in Romans, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God. 
After so many years of being told you can't come in, let us enter in with prayer, with the song in our hearts, with deeds of love and mercy, with the gifts of our time, our resources, our work, our love. And if God has allowed us into the heart of his presence, how can we keep others out of our own hearts? God has not kept the way closed to his mercy seat. I wonder, will you close off your neighbor, your brothers and sisters, your children, your spouse, your friends, your fellow Americans, other human beings made in the image of God? Will you close off and put a curtain before your mercy seat? Who do you need to let in? The curtain no longer hangs between you and God. Will you let the curtain continue to hang between you and others? Will you hold a grudge? Will you cling to your hate? Will you despise, reject, insult, or will you say, come on into my heart as I have received mercy so I will demonstrate and show mercy. I will let you into my heart as God has let me into his. The first says you can't come in. The second says Christ has entered in once for all. But the law causes a yearning in us in one other way. The first covenant not only says you can't come in, the first covenant also says you're still guilty. You're still guilty. Verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drinks and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until the time of the Reformation. So in the first, under the law, we have all these regulations for worship. What you can eat, what you can drink, how you wash your hands, what you should wear. But even if you kept perfectly all of these laws and regulations, guess what? None of them can give you a clean conscience. Clean hands. Yeah. Clean body. Yeah. Clean conscience. No. Every year, guess what? You still have to offer another sacrifice. Every year, the first covenant reminds us it's another year and you're still guilty. Verse 25 tells us that year after year, the high priest was offering these blood sacrifices, but did any of them do anything to take away even a single sin? Even one transgression under the law. Verse 15 tells us that a death had to occur to redeem us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So all the first covenant is doing, all the law of God is doing, is allowing the people of God to renegotiate the terms of their loan. Every year on the Day of Atonement, guess what they're doing? Paying off their debt? No. They're saying, God, can you give us one more year? We don't have the payment yet, but can you just give us another postponement until the payment can be made? They paid nothing toward what we owe. All the blood of bulls and goats quickly entering into the most holy place and then exiting was a, a request for God to have enough mercy to just give us one more year. 
The first says you're still guilty. After every sacrifice, another one was always needed. Every year of atonement had to be made again. You're still guilty. You're still guilty. You're still guilty. But then Christ came. And he died on the cross to pay the debt that had been put off for so very long. And he bought us, debt slaves, out from under the burden of the law. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And after having made that sacrifice, he didn't march into the temple. Jesus had no interest in returning to that earthly place. The author of Hebrews tells us he went up into heaven to the second tent, the better one. The heavenly tent made by God himself in order to inaugurate a second tent. Covenant, And he reminds us that under the old, everything inaugurated, the start of the law happened, everything had to be sprinkled with blood. Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, he says, it is necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So in the same way, the old had to be sprinkled, everything, with blood. The second the heavenly tent has to be sprinkled everywhere with blood. Everywhere you look in the first covenant, you saw the blood of bulls and goats. And do you know what that blood reminded you of over and over again? You're still guilty. Still guilty. But now, everywhere we look in the second covenant, we see the blood of Christ sprinkled. And what does it say to us? Your sin is put away once. And for all. Put away. The death of Christ silences the law's voice once and for all. Whenever we enter the presence of God and we see the blood of Christ sprinkled, the word we hear echoing in our minds and in our hearts is this, forgiven. Forgiven. Once for all. It's like the old hymn. Freed from the law. You all know that one? Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, friend, now believe it. Cling to the cross, your burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. If you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, the first covenant and all of its claims on you have been broken by his death. You have been divorced from your sin under the law. And as a priest of the new covenant, Jesus has sprinkled you with his blood, not just to hang out outside the curtain and hope that maybe you can get a peek at the presence of God, but so that you can go in because you haven't just been purified on the outside. The sprinkling of Christ's blood Sprinkles our hearts clean. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, having been offered through the eternal spirit to God, purify our conscience? That's what we want. 
not something that purifies the outside of us, but our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The first says you're still guilty. The second purifies our conscience and silences the law. Free. Free from the law. Oh, happy condition. Your sins are put away once for all. So as we conclude, what is the point? Why did God go to all this trouble? The holy place, in the most holy place, just so that we couldn't go in. And why did he command the high priest, a single solitary man, once a year, to go through that curtain and to make an offering of blood sacrifice that could never take away the sins of the people? It was a parable, an imitation, a copy. It was teaching God's people what one day Jesus would do. One day, one of their brothers would pass through the curtain, but not of the earthly tabernacle, of the second one, the heavenly one, and he would make a once-for-all-time atoning sacrifice, not with the worthless blood of animals, but of his own blood. And not repeatedly, but once for all. And so may we enter in. May we believe in truth that we are forgiven. This is the good news of the covenant that Jesus brings to us. The thing that we've longed for is now here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to treasure the thing that the prophets and the people of God longed for years and generations to see, we have beheld in the cross. And now you have allowed us to come in and to serve you with a clean conscience. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who's struggling with doubts or sin, that they would trust that they can enter in and find mercy, not wrath, forgiveness, and not accusation. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made the way. Help us to follow you each day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.